This is the 10 Q&A, the Temple 10Q Newsletter's monthly podcast. The Temple 10Q is the voice of, by, and for Temple Law School's business law community. Welcome to the Temple 10 Q&A. Um, I am Jonathan Lipson, the Harold Cohn Professor of Law, um, and we're here today to talk about bankruptcy for billionaires. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Charlotte Bismuth, who is a former prosecutor um, and has become, I think, something of an expert on the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. We both become experts on the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. So this special episode of the 10 Bull 10 Q&A is really going to be about what we think the, the Purdue Pharma case has been about, what it means, um, why we think it's important, why we think you should care about it. So, Charlotte, welcome. Thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Jonathan, it's a pleasure finally to meet you in person. I am going to leave the expert designation entirely to you. And uh, I'm feeling very fortunate to be here and able to ask you all the questions that I and so many others have had about the Purdue bankruptcy. And 10Q listeners, um, thank you for listening. You may know Jonathan as your Professor Lipson teaching contracts. Um, I know him as a bankruptcy scholar and expert who volunteered in early 2020 to help a group of bereaved families and addiction survivors understand an unprecedented and thorny case, which is the case of Purdue Pharma. In January 2020, I was struggling to understand the bankruptcy proceeding, even though I went to law school, Columbia. Um, it's okay. We forgive it. <laughs> just giving a shout out to the alma mater. Um, worked at uh, a law firm and then spent seven years as a New York City assistant district attorney. This bankruptcy was incomprehensible to me in many ways. And it mattered greatly because I'd witnessed a lot of carnage caused by OxyContin. It mattered to people I'd met who'd either lost a loved one to an overdose or struggled with opioid use disorder. Fortunately for everyone involved, I sent an email to Jonathan on January 29th, 2020, asking for his help, and he answered. During our fir first phone calls, maybe a week later, I asked him if he'd be willing to participate in a conference call, webinar, or tutorial on the basics of bankruptcy law for survivors, families, and activists. And this is what he said, listeners. I can't imagine what those families have been through. Of course, I will help. And in fact, he conducted not one but two virtual classes for dozens of us, one on March 23rd, the other April 17th. And thanks to him, I and many, many others who really would not have had a chance to pierce through the jargon and the complexities of bankruptcy were able to understand it and get involved. So for that, I am very, very grateful to you. And I know many others are as well. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate your saying that. And of course, I couldn't have done it without like an army of students and folks here at the law school um, who, you know, were as motivated as you are and as everybody else is. And Charlotte, you know, you are way too generous for saying all those nice things, but of course I appreciate it. I think the other thing though that you all need to know is, is a little bit more about Charlotte because she really saw the opioid crisis up close um, in ways that I think most of us haven't. And, and so long before the bankruptcy, um, and certainly the bankruptcy folks started to think about opioid um, she had prosecuted a, a doctor, uh, Stan Lee, who was an anesthesiologist who apparently run a pill mill out of a bank basement in, in Queens. And that in itself was extraordinary because I think those are very difficult prosecutions. Um, and 
she then wrote an amazing book about it, um, about the experience called Bad Medicine, um, which, you know, really makes vivid and immediate, I think, the horrors of the opioid epidemic and, and sort of how difficult it is for people to kind of get their arms around this crisis, which I think everybody is generally familiar with, but for those who aren't, right, I mean, you know, I think the CDC would tell us that nearly a million people have lost their lives to um, substance, you know, use disorder overdose. Um, and about 75% of those overdoses, I think, involved opioids. So, you know, we all know this is a really serious problem. I don't know that we need to get into too much of the detail, except to say that, you know, from at least what I've learned through the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma is that Purdue Pharma was sort of ground zero in all this. It was the company that invented the time-release synthetic opioids that, you know, were marketed as being, you know, much less addictive than any alternatives and it turns out falsely marketed um, in that way. Um, and that in turn led to, you know, it was an explosion in the use of opioids. Um, ultimately, it became fentanyl, it became other things. Um, but, the you know, the thing that I say to students when I talk about this is that you know, you can analogize the opioid crisis to a bomb. And obviously, Purdue Pharma did not build the bomb alone, right? It takes lots of people to build bombs. It takes doctors like Dr. Lee. It takes lots of companies um, doing things that are problematic. But, you know, Purdue and its owners, the people that we're going to spend a bit of time about, talking about, the Sackler family, they didn't build the bomb, but they built a fuse and, and they lit it. And I think they lit it twice um, for reasons that we'll explain as we go through. Um, but, you know, they, I think, play a very special and important and problematic role in, in, in this whole crisis. And one that I think ultimately the bankruptcy was commenced to obscure. Um, and, and I think that is really the heart of the problem here. So to, to set the background a little bit. Um, if any of you have read Barry Meyer's groundbreaking reporting on Purdue Pharma or his 2001 book, Painkiller, or Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain, you'll remember first that Purdue Pharma is a family-owned pharmaceutical company that developed and manufactured OxyContin. The Sackler family owns and operates Purdue Pharma, or at least operated um, until shortly we, before the bankruptcy, right? They, we can they, they we, we can it. discuss that. Uh, they first made bank with the blockbuster drug Valium as a result of direct to physician marketing tactics developed by one of the company's founding owners, Arthur Sackler. Of course, OxyContin then came along and broke all records. Under the direction of Richard Sackler, the company dispatched thousands of sales reps into physicians' offices, enticing them with biased, inaccurate information and kickbacks to prescribe this drug widely to patients suffering from pain. The company has pleaded guilty twice, or technically a subsidiary of the company first in 2007 and most recently um, in 2021. 2020 is when they- 20. Uh, to several federal criminal charges related to the fraudulent marketing of OxyContin. So I've been following the story of Purdue Pharma since 2010, working on prescription drug crimes at the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, little did I know as a litigation associate at Debevoise and Plimpton that we represented members of the Sackler family. And to be clear, I never worked on those cases. And it was quite upsetting to learn about that. Um, turning back to you, Jonathan, tell me about your first uh, introduction to the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. Sure. Yeah. I, As I said, like I'd not really focused on 
opioids or opioid makers. Obviously, I knew that there was this thing called the opioid crisis that seemed terrible. But, you know, in September of 2019, Purdue Pharma went into bankruptcy. And I got a call from a woman named Peg Brickley, who's a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who I talked to about bankruptcy stuff. And she was like, can you talk to me about this case? It seems sort of nutty. And I started to look at it and really wasn't sure, you know, whether it was a big problem or not. I think the concern even then was that because it was a family company owned and controlled by a small group of very wealthy people, um, that perhaps the case was being used to protect that group of people. Um, and so, you know, Peg asked me to sort of look at some stuff initially. We talked about it initially. Um, and it became increasingly clear to me that there were very serious allegations against the Sackler family, against the executives at Purdue Pharma, that the bankruptcy process was probably not going to address unless there was some kind of intervention. Um, nobody seemed to be terribly interested in getting at the truth about what had gone on at, at, at Purdue Pharma, even though that seemed to be really important. So, you know, I got involved in the case a little bit early on because I and a bunch of academics sent a letter to basically an open letter calling for the appointment of what's called an examiner in the case. Um, an examiner would have investigated the allegations against the Sacklers, against the, you know, the folks who were running the company when it was committing these crimes. Um, and, you know, we can talk more about where that letter went. <laughs> um, uh, it, it definitely made it into your inbox, Charlotte, um, which is, I think, how you, you kind of, you know, stumbled on me, but didn't end up, in, you know, producing, I don't think, any of the the truth that we, I think, so many people wanted. So anyway, so the case itself, you know, is commenced in 2019. And, and maybe it's helpful for folks to just kind of understand very quickly what's happened. Because, you know, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the case is still going on. We don't actually know kind of what the outcome is going to be. The overarching concern, of course, became that the Sacklers were using the process to, you know, as many people have said, get away with it. Um, and the concern is that the it is crimes, that they're using the process to conceal evidence of crimes. And of course, we don't know really if they did commit crimes. The bankruptcy process, um, though, was clearly used to shield them because the whole purpose from their perspective, I think, of the bankruptcy was to get them what are called releases. And a release is simply uh, an order by a court saying that somebody can't be held liable for something, or at least that's how we use the term bankruptcy. The Sacklers, as I'm sure everybody knows, they're not in bankruptcy, and so they can't get the normal benefit of bankruptcy, which is the discharge or elimination of debt. Purdue can get that, and that's fine. That's not exciting. Um, but they, you know, from the very outset made clear that they, too, wanted a release. And that isn't necessarily that unusual. At least at the time, it wasn't that unusual. Um, but for these folks, it was a problem. So the case sort of, you know, is really one long extended negotiation among creditors, among the Sacklers, among other representatives of the company over really three things, like what the Sacklers are going to give to creditors um, in order to get these releases, what the releases will cover, and what's going to become of the company itself after bankruptcy. And ultimately, that you know deal is, is embodied in what's called a plan of reorganization. We'll talk more about those as we go, but you know it's just a deal. And Creditors get to vote on it. Creditors did vote on it. I don't think they understood quite what they were voting on, but they voted. Um, and um, that was approved by the bankruptcy court, I think, in, in September of 2021. Um, and it gave the Sacklers exactly what they wanted, um, these releases, so that they were no longer going to have any civil liability for any of the serious allegations that had been made against them. 
Fast forward to December of 2021, and we all get a surprise. And the surprise is that the, you know, some of the creditors who were unhappy with us had appealed, um, and the appellate court reversed the bankruptcy court, which was a shock to all of us. Um, so the, all of a sudden, the Sacklers were not going to get what they had thought they were going to get. Um, they're not going to get released. And, you know, that was, for many people, quite good news, um, because it meant perhaps we could actually then learn more about what had been going on with these folks. Um, but of course the Sacklers and the company and, and many creditors who had sort of signed on to their deal appealed to what is known as the second circuit court of appeals, the sort of higher level. And that's where the case is now. Um, the case is pending before the second circuit and we don't know when they're going to act. Um, we know that there were arguments on either side, arguments for the Sacklers, arguments for folks who think that giving them these releases was really a problem. Um, and, and. That decision could come today, it could come tomorrow, it could come a year from tomorrow. We don't really know. And so we're all sort of sitting around waiting for it. Of course, meanwhile, we have lots of other bankruptcies involving billionaires, right? We have Endo and we have the Johnson & Johnson LTL bankruptcy, you know, billion-dollar companies. Um, and we have the bankruptcy of a former billionaire, right? FTX and, and <laughs> Sam you know, uh, Bankman-Fried. Um, then we may talk about those folks as we, as we go along as well. But so that's sort of how I first got involved in it um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of what, you know, the overview of the, of the cases. As always, when we start to talk about this bankruptcy, there are so many issues that I want to follow up on, dig into. And to be clear, you and I have talked about doing a podcast series, actually, where we would have the time and access to the guests, um, you know, people – uh, who have studied the issue or authors like Beth Macy, whose best-selling book, Dope Sick, really detailed the, you know, the, the heart-wrenching damage done in uh, towns and counties by OxyContin. Um, I just want to throw out a couple of things that I think are important to come back to. One, you mentioned the Sacklers drawing benefits of bankruptcy. One thing that we will t hopefully talk about in a later episode is the obligations that come with a bankruptcy proceeding to which they were not um, subject. Uh, your examiner request, of course, and what an examiner does, can do, has done in the past that can be so uh, important and um, uh, substantively satisfying to plaintiffs and the public at large and important in order to inform us on how to avoid future catastrophes. Um, and also just adding to the bankruptcies that you mentioned, I would add the Olympic Committee and the Boy Scouts because I think those are two bankruptcies where you're dealing with a problem that is one not just of money but humanity pain, suffering, uh, trauma, lifelong trauma. And one of my questions to you from the beginning was, what is the essential values considered in a bankruptcy proceeding? And how are bankruptcy proceedings an appropriate vehicle to deal with a complex and mass problem like that where you have people who have been hurt so deeply? Um, Anyway, consider that a teaser for a podcast series that hopefully we will be able to get into. Um, going back to the really the basics of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, Jonathan, can you tell our listeners 
what is the practical effect on a case and specifically on plaintiffs who have pending civil lawsuits when the defendant company goes into bankruptcy? Sure. So the you know the bankruptcy process is is it looks like litigation a little bit like if you are for example you know a personal injury victim and you've sued a company thinking that they've they've harmed you you know you would go to a regular court you'd sue them and you try to get a, a you know a remedy and bankruptcy happens in court but it's really different in the sense that there is no plaintiff and there is no defendant in in the ordinary sense and it's not intended to determine liability. It's, it's intended to help maximize payments to people who are entitled to get paid, assuming that we, you know, and therefore assumes that we've already figured out who is liable and for what. Um, and so the core value of bankruptcy is, is to, you know, maximize recoveries for creditors and also to enable what's sometimes, you know, called the honest but unfortunate debtor to get back on his or her or its feet. And, and this is, you know, it's a sort of a key feature of our legal system. It has been for many, many years. And, you know, like every legacy airline has gone through bankruptcy and they've come out, you know, mostly okay. And, you know, every company in, you know, with asbestos exposure has gone through bankruptcy. You know, literally thousands of companies have gone through bankruptcy. And, and, and you know, scores of the hundreds of thousands of individuals have. And it's not, you know, it's not a problematic process. It's a really important piece of the economy. Um, and but you know what it does to individual creditors is basically tells them you're not going to get much you're not going to get much money and you're certainly not going to get a day in court because if you thought you were going to be able to you know put some witnesses on the stand and have them explain you know what they did and why they did it and 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 perhaps hold them accountable in that way that's not going to happen in bankruptcy because bankruptcy is mostly about Money and and money is you know it's expensive to have trials. It's expensive to have due process. It's expensive to have your day in court. And if the goal is to you know pay people out as much and as quickly as possible, you know I think many bankruptcy folks would say we just don't we can't waste time with that. And you know you mentioned the the um, the bankruptcies involving sexual abuse and 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 you know my sort of larger view about all this stuff and hopefully we'll talk more about it is that, you know, part of what's happened over the last 15 years or so is that there's developed this cluster of cases that I think of as involving like social debt or some sort of serious moral failings that we're trying to cash out in bankruptcy. Um, and so, you know, all the diocesan cases, all the, you know, nearly 30 dioceses or Catholic organizations have gone into bankruptcy because of the sexual misconduct of priests. And you have, you know, the Boy Scouts, you have USA Gymnastics, you have Weinstein. Like, like those are like, different to me than the bankruptcy of United Airlines. Um, and the same is true for the opioid folks, right? Um, you know, I think that the that Purdue Pharma, Endo, maybe some of these other guys, like the misconduct there and certainly the human carnage of those, you know, what those companies did is just different in kind than, you know, even like Enron or Lehman Brothers, right? I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the FTX bankruptcy develops. My guess is it'll probably look more like Madoff um, than it will look like Purdue Pharma. But, you know, in any case, like these social debt bankruptcies, like they present really serious challenges because the bankruptcy system is all about money. And I think for so many people trapped in these cases, you know, like the folks that you worked with, Charlotte, that we worked with, like they don't understand the process. And for them, it's definitely not 
just about the money. Money matters. Money matters to everybody, but it's not just about the money. And, and that's, I think, the fundamental problem with these cases. So let me ask you a question then, Charlotte. Um, I know a little bit about bankruptcy, but I don't know hardly anything about the rest of the world. And you know a lot about the rest of the world because you were a real lawyer. So what would have happened if Purdue hadn't gone into bankruptcy? Like, what would the world have looked like? Well, I am certainly not an expert in in this, but I have relied on um, the work of uh, people like Elizabeth Chambly Birch, whose book on mass tort deals is incredible. I highly recommend it. Um, the answer to your question is that the civil lawsuits against Purdue Pharma were part of the MDL, which is a multi-district litigation. It's overseen by Judge Dan Polster in the Northern District of Ohio. I MDL stood for messy damn litigation. <laughs> well, okay. I don't, uh, see, I don't know. I don't know this stuff. I don't know this stuff. I mean, it, it, in many ways, possibly. Um, so these claims would have been resolved, possibly settled, possibly remanded back to home courts and or tried as bellwether cases, along with all the other claims against opioid manufacturers that were bundled together as part of this MDL process. There is so much to talk about with MDLs, you know, the trends lately that have uh, caused it to become a very different creature than I think it was intended to be. Again, I refer you to this excellent book. And hopefully if we get the chance to do our extremely exciting podcast series about bankruptcy for billionaires, um, Professor Birch will be able to come chat with us. But uh, so the civil lawsuits would have gone into the MDL and had the fate of cases in an MDL um, as right. massive. And they're like real lawsuits. I mean, these companies, the, the, you know, the, the, the pharmacies and whomever, like they're, they're having to defend themselves or having to get on the stand and explain what they did. Absolutely. In many cases, in other cases, there have been uh, settlements of hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, who knows? Uh, we do know that members of the Sackler family have said that they would have intended and certainly intend if ever lawsuits proceed to trial to fight them as hard as they could. They believe that they have a very strong case um, in terms of causation. So uh, who knows what would have happened with the Purdue cases. But um, what's very interesting and sad to me about the Purdue case is that it was a case that begged for criminal investigation and prosecution. So as we mentioned, in May 2007, a subsidiary of the company and three of its executives pleaded guilty to federal criminal charges. Uh, now, this was a company with a history of off-label marketing and kickbacks to physicians. And as it turned out, there was, when we started talking about a bankruptcy, another criminal investigation brewing within the U.S. Justice Department, uh, which led to more uh, uh, criminal charges and a plea bargain in 2021. But only involving the company. Only involving the company. That's correct. Uh this was absolutely a case in which we would have hoped and expected to see criminal trials of individual corporate dec decision makers. There's a lot to say about potential venues and theories for those cases. It's another subject worthy of a deep dive. But, you know, what's amazing to me is that not only have obviously none of the civil lawsuits come forward, they're all subject to an injunction now um, imposed by drug Judge Drain, renewed, I think we're at the 30th or 31st renewal of the injunction. But uh, even within the bankruptcy proceeding and with the release of the disclosure statement, we still don't know 
who at Purdue made the decisions? Are they still employed with the company? What decisions did they make? When did they make them? I mean, when I think back to reading about the Enron bankruptcy and the report, you know, I who had never heard of Enron because of, I believe I was a student at the time, knew what had happened within the company. Here we have, you know, more than 500,000 deaths. We have families all over the country who have been just wrecked emotionally, financially, who have lost a child, which, you know, as, as a mom, I just, it, I can't even begin to fathom the pain. And nobody knows. Nobody is being told. No information has been discovered or released. That to me is incomprehensible. All this to say, uh, when Purdue went into bankruptcy, it became the last game in town, other than possibly, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice. There are families now who are demanding, begging uh, the Justice Department to prosecute members of the Sackler family if that is appropriate or other corporate executive decision makers. But as of now, that is one more thing that we don't know. Right, which is, which is I think, for many, at least certainly for me, and I think for many others, the most problematic thing about Purdue Pharma, that you, know, you have these you know, terrible cases where terrible things have happened, but you need bankruptcy to sort of manage payments because people you know, do need some compensation and deserve some compensation, and bankruptcy is a really good way to you know, get it out there. But in uh, these other cases that have involved significant wrongdoing, like Enron, um, or even the, you know, almost all of the, the sexual abuse cases, you have either individual prosecutions, right, or you have an independent report from an examiner about what happened, or both, as you saw in Enron. Um, and the key thing to me about Purdue Pharma, the reason it's so problematic is that you don't have either, right? You don't have any real transparency about what happened here, as, as you said, Sean. Um, and... Therefore, you have no reason to think anybody is going to be held accountable. But these were decisions, like human beings made these decisions. Purdue Pharma as a corporation can plead guilty until the cows come home. Who cares, right? Corporations don't make decisions. People do. And because the company was owned and controlled by a very small group of people for many years, right, like you think maybe they're the ones that matter. Well, they're the ones who, you know, for reasons that we can get into in greater detail as we go, like they sort of structured the process long before bankruptcy to make sure, to the maximum extent possible, that it was going to shield them um, in just the ways that it has so far. Um, and I think, you know, that, so, so you, you know, you know, advised your, the group of folks you're talking about, I think, you know, really well in saying like, look, this is, this is the last game in town. And, you know, if, if you don't try to get some truth about what happened at this company, like, you're not ever going to get it. Now, it's true, of course, that the bankruptcy, you know, will ultimately produce something called a document repository, and it will have lots of information about the company. But, of course, the whole point is that the company was owned by this family, the Sacklers, and they will contribute some things to it, but I think they're not going to contribute a heck of a lot. And so if, you, if what you really want to know is what were the human beings doing, you know, through the 20-odd years when they knew they were producing a product that was killing scores hundreds of thousands of people and trying to ramp up sales, right? Trying to turbocharge the market for opioids. Like, like you're probably not going to figure that out, even though 
in a properly handled process, for example, a criminal prosecution of the individuals, you would. And, and so that, you know, that's what's at stake here, I think. Um, and so, you know, the, it's, right, it's a problem. <laughs> it ain't great. Absolutely. And even though I am retired from the bar, um, I still have the, you know, the mind and sometimes paranoia of a lawyer. I did not give any legal advice to anyone. I was actually working and learning a lot from, uh, with you, a group of people who had been severely harmed by Purdue Pharma. And we, you know, were talking together about what we could do. Um, but I was not their legal advisor. So, right. And well, I know this takes us slightly off script, but, but maybe just talk about this group for a sec. Charlotte, because, you know, right, neither of us were their lawyers. They did find a lawyer, and he was an awesome guy named Mike Quinn. But, but talk just a little bit about the, 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 the you know, this group of individuals who in turn, I think, often represented organizations of grieving parents and survivors um, of the opioid crisis and, and sort of how they ended up kind of getting sucked into this crazy bankruptcy black hole. I would be glad to talk about them, and I think that they're worthy of one or more episodes yeah. to tell their stories because, um, you know, once you know and have met these people and heard their story, I think the word hero takes on a whole new meaning. Um, so uh, I had a book coming out about the opioid epidemic in... Bad um, Medicine, go get it. <laughs> January 2021, or was it 2020, my goodness. 2020. Um, 2020. And uh, I was lucky enough to be introduced to um, the members of the Sackler Payne Group, which is an incredible activist group. Uh, their founder, Nan Golden, the amazing, absolutely amazing photographer, groundbreaking photographer, is right now the subject of a movie by Laura Poitras, um, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which tells in part the story of Sackler Payne as well. Um, she had suffered from opioid use disorder as a result of um, being prescribed OxyContin. And after learning of the Sackler family's so-called philanthropy in the art world, decided to fight them on her turf, which was, um, you know, museums, and uh, decided rightly that it was unacceptable for their names to appear in the grand galleries of the world when they had committed so much harm. Uh, so she formed a group with um, other activists and survivors and family members, and they began protesting the Sackler name. They've Their work has resulted in the removal of the name from institutions ranging from the Met to um, the Tate Gallery. So I started talking to them, and we both had the same question, which is, um, they as activists and I as a former attorney were both wondering, you know, what the heck is going on in this bankruptcy and um, how can we get the voices of the creditors, the individuals harmed by the crisis to resonate within the bankruptcy, to be heard, because it did not appear that the need for accountability, the need for truth, the need for um, some sort of a, a significant remedy was being addressed. We, uh, you and I organized um, with another activist uh, a webinar. There were members of the Sackler Payne group on the webinar, but also in the beginning of a webinar, there was a, a voice that came on of a gentleman 
who said, um, well, I'm glad we're talking about the bankruptcy. I saw advertisements about the claims process, but it seems to come from Purdue Pharma and I don't trust anything that they say. And that to me was such an important point because, you know, later on in the case, whenever I heard the judge or the lead attorneys talk about all the efforts that they'd made publicizing the case and the claims process and what they didn't understand was that this company had done so much harm, a harm that was unimaginable, that there was a taint to anything with the company's name on it. And there would be a um, a concern that people were going to be harmed again in some way. So the you know, to me, there there should have been an effort of public education and awareness and uh, you know, media coverage that would have really tried to reach right. out to as many people as possible and explain what happened, what it meant, what they could do. Anyway, in a credible and independent way. Exactly. Um, that gentleman, it turned out, was Ed Bish, who lost his only son in 2001. So imagine how long he has been fighting every single day uh, to a single OxyContin pill. Also on that call were other parents who had lost children to OxyContin. Um, and we came together, formed a group named OxyJustice, and began brainstorming on Zoom calls about uh, sharing information about the bankruptcy and brainstorming about what we could do. Ultimately, a few members of OxyJustice peeled off to form the Committee for Accountability, and they were represented by the one and only Michael Quinn. Um, and they began asking in their epic motions. Um, the <laughs> we'll, questions, we'll have Mike on it yes, in the future. Yes. He's, the questions that really nobody had been asking. And, you know, coming back to the point we made earlier, one of the questions, for instance, that Mike raised in one of his motions was, you know, the court is reviewing uh, motions submitted by the estate to um, increase the compensation of executives, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, again, who made these decisions back in the day? Are they still employed? Are they going to be receiving these, you know, uh, adjustments and right. compensation and bonuses? So, again, the you know, injecting into the preceding questions of accountability and truth that really were not at, at the forefront. Um, I think, well, I think I think it's apparent that we need a podcast series. I mean, there's just <laughs> there's so much to talk about. about. There's, there's a lot, a lot to talk about. about. But I think I think the point that you make about you know the lack of trust in this company and the disconnect right between the bankruptcy process, which is a process that you know is sort of run by big law law firms. You know, when you have big cases and it you know it takes place in, in only a few courts, and we'll, you know, we can talk more about which courts and why and what that means. Um, it's an insular world, and it's a functional world, right, of repeat players, folks who, you know, kind of see each other in the same cases over and over again, and they're really smart people. And I think for the most part, they're really well-intended people. But what I also think is they're insular, and they just couldn't see what you saw and what you helped me see, which is, like, the suffering that this company caused was just a different order of magnitude than the ordinary financial damage that, you know, dumb or unlucky companies cause when they go into bankruptcy. Um, and and so, you know, Mike acting, you know, on behalf of, of the Ad Hoc Committee on Accountability, the Accountability Committee, Ed and, you know, people like Emily Walden and, and Cynthia Munger and, you know, all these people, like, bringing that perspective into the case was both incredibly courageous 
and necessary and incredibly unwelcome. And, you know, I mean, I, we'll talk more about this later. I think the only person, you know, the bankruptcy judge in the case, uh, Bob Drain, you know, dislikes more than Mike Quinn is me, perhaps, <laughs> but it's close. Um, and in both cases, you know, I think it's because we were trying to, in a sense, say, by the way, the emperor, it's not, the emperor doesn't even, isn't even naked. Like, there is no emperor. Like, there's a real problem here, people. And, you, you know, you sort of have to focus on that. And, and they didn't want to hear it. And I understand why they didn't want to hear it. Um, but so that was, you know, that's part of, I think, what's at stake in these cases. That, that you know, sometimes you have these, you know, terrible human tragedies that, you know, a system that's designed to cash people out just can't really deal with very well. And I, as a former, you know, ADA, um, I know how hard that work is, also how difficult it is to, you know, to sort of come up against what has become the way of doing things. But I think it's so important for all attorneys at every stage in their career, and especially I think law students today, to always keep in mind that you know, there is this, there may be this tremendous discomfort in being the voice of dissent in a group or in a proceeding or in the media. But you became an attorney because you have a belief in the possibility of justice and you have to follow that call. And sometimes it's one that's not very popular. Um, clearly a podcast series is necessary. I, <laughs> last time I say it, but if anyone agrees with us, let us know. Um, Jonathan, who are the key players in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy? Sure. So there are a lot. It's a big case, um, you know, that you start with the bankruptcy judge. So, you know, said bankruptcy is a process that occurs in federal court. The judge is a man named Bob Drain. Um, very, very, very smart, well-respected judge um, on the bench for many years. I had a personal connection to him. He's one of the first people I worked for when I got out of law school, long before he was a judge. Um, and, you know, super smart uh, person. I think that there were some things they did in the case that I might have done differently, but, you know, I wasn't the judge. Um, judge Colleen McMahon is the judge who reversed him. Um, we said earlier that the you know, plan gave the sack was what they wanted. Um, judge McMahon and Judge Drain gave that to them. He approved that. Judge McMahon took it away. Um, and she's at the district court level, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an appeals court for bankruptcy purposes. Otherwise, it's, it's usually the trial court. But for bankruptcy, she was the appellate judge. Um, uh, I think another really important player was a guy named Marshall Hubner. He was counsel to Purdue Pharma. Um, and, you know, I think, again, a very well-respected, very smart, capable bankruptcy lawyer at the Davis Polk Law Firm. Um, you know, it sounds like he'd worked with Purdue and the Sacklers for about a year and a half or so before bankruptcy. Um, so, you know, he, he was obviously very committed to the deal that Purdue and the Sacklers wanted. Um, a man of few words. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does like to talk. Um, and then you have a bunch of lawyers um, uh, who represented various factions of the the Sackler family. Mary Jo White, who was a former U.S. attorney, um, um, and her colleague Maura Monahan, who I think were at the Debevoise firm. Um, you know where you had been, Charlotte. Not when, not not when you were with them, or they weren't. You weren't working with them on this, obviously. Not um, on that matter, right? Uh, right. Um, and I think another branch of the family was represented by. Attorneys Gregory Joseph and Gerard Uzi, who I think are, you know, they're all like brilliant lawyers and they, I think, completely outfoxed lots and lots and lots of people in this case. But, um, you know, that's what the Sacklers paid for and that's what they got. Just jumping in here, um, Gerard Uzi 
or was it Gregory Joseph, the authors of the famous website lampooned by John Oliver? Um, right. Can't quite remember. Presenting the truth from the perspective of his clients. And we can we can add a link to that website and to the John Oliver version of the website. Yes, 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 yes. Great. Um, you know, one of the questions that people always ask is like, well, where were the creditors in all this, right? I mean, there's 600,000 creditors who filed claims against Purdue, which is an enormous number, right? And, you know, there were millions of people harmed by the company's products. Um, and they were represented by a pretty small group, um, a group known as the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Um, it had... I think nine members, five commercial creditors, so like, I don't know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and CVS, and then four personal injury creditors. Um, and they were, you know, it's not clear how representative they were of, of the full body of creditors. I think part of the reason that the Ad Hoc Accountability Committee had to come together, did come together, and became so important and problematic is because that committee couldn't represent the kinds of interests that 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 the accountability committee represented oh, representative and also heard within the committee one of the members uh, representing personal injury creditors Ryan Hampton right. recently published a very insightful book right. about the bankruptcy where he discusses the challenges of sitting on that committee yeah uh, yeah and, and Ryan was the was the was the the, the the chair of the committee and I think you know it hoped that um, that some kind of Accountability, some kind of truth would come out of the process, and and it didn't. Um, and you know, we'll, I'm not sure we'll ever fully know why it didn't. But yes, he's you know, hopefully we'll have Ryan as a guest because you know he's got a lot to say, really insightful things to say about the case. Um, you know, another group of creditors um, involved. So, some of the most important creditors in the case were governments, right? So many, many of the you know the costs created by the opioid crisis were borne by governments, like trillions of dollars in cleanup costs, abatement costs associated with the opioid crisis. And, you know, the states um, were probably the most active creditors in the case, and they were split um, from the very start. You know, the, 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 the deal that the Sacklers, you know, initially got approved by the bankruptcy court really had been a negotiated, you know, long before bankruptcy, it sounds like, by David Sackler and um, a personal injury lawyer named Mike Moore, you know, on behalf of a, a group of states that was willing to settle. Um, and, you know, as the company decided to go into bankruptcy, it became increasingly clear that the states themselves were going to be divided about whether they should settle. A lot of red states wanted to settle with them, just like take the money, move on with life. You know, a lot of states, blue states mostly, were like, um, no, like we need to know what happened here. And we need you know, more money and more accountability from the Sackler family before we can do anything. And, and that group of non-consenting states, as they were sometimes called, um, in, you know, included most notably Massachusetts and New York and Connecticut. Um, they were represented by you know, a lawyer named Andrew Troop, again, a really smart, capable lawyer who I think was doing the best he could. Um, another really important player was the um, Office of the United States Trustee. That's a, a, an arm of the federal government that's supposed to act as a watchdog in the bankruptcy. Um, and there, um, the U.S. trustee in person in that case is a, a man named Bill Harrington. Um, he used to live here in Philadelphia. Um, Great guy, great lawyer, um, and his office really has led the charge against the release of the Sacklers um, in in sort of, in also sort of a heroic way, um, uh, in part because Judge Drain had you know as little patience for the U.S. trustee as he had for um, somebody like Mike Quinn coming in and shouting about you know truth and and and, and justice and that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's also important that you know, there are a lot of 
media folks who played really important roles in this case, reporters like you mentioned Beth Macy, um, Patrick Reagan Keefe. I think that's true. Of course, you know, Charlotte, your writing about the opioid crisis has been really important to help people understand kind of, you know, at a very, you know, deep and personal level, like what goes on here and how difficult it is to hold people accountable. Um, Gerald Posner is a, you know, an amazing investigative reporter who written a couple of op-eds about all this. I wrote one with him. He's got, you know, the book of Pharma, which is incredible. Libby Lewis um, has written some great stuff for the, the, the New Republic about this. So, you know, these these writers were all very interested in, in, in understanding kind of what was going on and I think helped to bring a spotlight to the case. So then you then get people like John Oliver <clears throat> focusing on it. Um, and so I think that, you know, those are, that's a pretty good summary. I can't think of too many other folks and personal injury folks, you know, Mike Moore, the personal injury lawyers, I think were really, really important in, in brokering the deal that the Sacklers wanted. Um, and I'm sure in all good faith believe that it was the best plausible deal given the firepower that the Sacklers could bring to any fight. Um, and so it was, you know, it's a very hard case, I think, for, for all those reasons. It is. And I think they would say that there's an urgency to bringing the remediation money down into the communities. I think there's just a real tension between, you know, th that goal and the sort of broader goal of not just bringing in remediation money, but also you know, responding to people's questions about what happened, making sure that individual families uh, get compensated, et cetera. Um, just to note, when you talked about the U.S. trustee, they were the ones upon whom you called originally to appoint an examiner, right. correct? So they also have the power to do that. That's right. And, and you know, for reasons that will never be known, although, you know, I and 20 other law professors signed this letter saying, you know, we really think there should be an examination in this case of the Sacklers. Um you know, the U.S. Trustee's Office never responded. We can speculate as to why um, in a future episode. So let's do – we're going to do a quick lightning round of numbers. I will say the number, and you will tell our listeners what it represents. Got it. All right. The number two. The number of times Purdue Pharma agreed to plead guilty to federal drug crimes. $10.5 billion. The minimum amount of money that the Sackler family took out of Purdue Pharma after its first criminal plea in 2007 when they could see the lawsuits beginning to... They saw the writing on the wall. They yeah. knew that they were going to be in trouble. Six billion dollars. The amount of money that the Sacklers moved offshore, that portion of the 10.5 billion that they placed out of reach of U.S. courts and U.S. creditors. 5.5 billion dollars. The amount that the Sacklers have promised to return to creditors over 18 years if the deal that they struck, that the bankruptcy court approved, um, but that was then reversed, um, ultimately goes through because the Second Circuit ultimately gives them what they're asking for. Now, this is a number that really blows my mind. $711 million. The amount of fees charged by lawyers and other professionals in the Purdue Farmer case as of the end of September of 2022. A number we should note that, you know, will almost certainly exceed $1 billion when all is said and done, assuming the, you know, there is some kind of plan that, in fact, goes through. And let's just note here that for families and survivors of uh, the damages of OxyContin, the maximum recovery amount, assuming you can show a legitimate prescription, et cetera, et cetera, documentation, $48,000. Right. Yes. And that is for an, a fatal overdose. Yes, really good. Good number, $48,000. I mean, just... Really important number. Appalling. That very, very appalling number. Um, 
612,000. That's the number of claims that were filed in the case. And my guess is that, you know, many of those creditors will get some very small payout. I think 3,000 is the speedy, easy form of payment. If you just, you know, have a, a prescription, you can, you know, submit that and, and get $3,000. Um, if, you know, you want more, then you got to got to do a little bit more work. Um, but 600, you know, over 600,000 people filed claims in the case, which is, is an incredible number. And let's note, many of them uh, may not have known, and something that I learned very late, that nobody would be compensated unless they had they could demonstrate that they had received a legal prescription from a physician. So all of the victims of Purdue who had obtained OxyContin from other sources were excluded from the compensation program. And yet their cases were still subject to the injunction. Right. And so, you know, you have like lots and lots of people whose, you know, whose kids, God forbid, you know, passed away because they took OxyContin, you know, that they found at, you know, a kid's, you know, the the parents, at a party or whatever, party, otherwise. the parents, you know, in, the, in somebody's in somebody's medicine cabinet and they took it because they didn't know what it was or whatever because they're kids. And, you know, they die. Yeah. And those parents, do they get $48,000, Charlotte? They do not. They get $0. Yeah. They get $0. Thank you. I, I really have no words for no, – I really great. have no words for that. Um, so of the – 612,000 number of claims filed in the case, all the other potential creditors, what percentage actually voted on the reorganization plan? Right. So we said that the Sacklers deal, you know, had to be put into what's called a plan of reorganization for Purdue Pharma, and creditors have to vote on it. It doesn't happen unless creditors vote. Um, and only 20% of creditors actually voted on the plan, even though all of them, every person on the planet, really, at least every person in the United States, will be bound by it. And that, you know, in very practical terms means that no matter what, you know, Purdue Pharma or the Sacklers or the executives of the company or anybody involved with opioids did, right, you know, you will not be able to sue them, right? It doesn't make any difference that they're not in bankruptcy. It doesn't make any difference that you got nothing. It doesn't make any difference that you never got to learn the truth about the allegations. You get nothing. You can't do anything after, after that, even if even though only 20% of creditors voted for it, voted on it. And turning our attention to the releases, there is a very important indeterminate number in this bankruptcy proceeding. And what is that? The indeterminate number, the number we don't know and probably never will know, is the number of beneficiaries of the releases given under the plan. So the Sacklers, of course, have gotten all this attention, you know, the John Oliver Show, whatever, for getting these things that we call releases, which it's really an injunction, it's just a court order shielding them from any other lawsuits. Um, but, you know, once you read the list, like it goes on and on and on and on. And, the, you know, it's, it could include hundreds of individuals and entities that might have been involved in, um, in you know, produce confessed misconduct. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's a real problem that we, you know, we have a bankruptcy court that approved such broad releases without any commitment to explaining to creditors what it was they were giving up. So one of the questions that came up during the Second Circuit argument, and it was certainly on the mind of Judge Newman, isn't this plan going to help reduce the harm from the opioid crisis? Isn't it important to just push it through as imperfect as it may be just to get the money through? 
Um, and in answering that question, maybe we can wrap up by having you talk about what you think the stakes are for this case and for the decision that we're waiting on. Sure. I think that, you know, every effort to try to achieve, you know, transparency or accountability or, you know, what have you, the sorts of things that I think lots of people wanted, you know, was was met with the response, it will cost too much money. It's standing in the way of opioid abatement. Um, and and there's obviously some truth in that, right? You know, the, the more process you have, the more costly it is, the, the longer things can take. Um, obviously, you know, we're now, you know, well into this case, right? I mean, it's, you know, over three years and not a nickel has gone to abate the opioid crisis from Purdue Pharma, even though 700 million has gone to the lawyers. Um, so, you know, I, I think, sure, the plan might help to reduce the harm from the opioid crisis, but I think there are lots of ways to do that. And of course, I think, you know, if the process had been handled differently, maybe there'd been more independent investigation reporting, there might be more money, right? The Sacklers might have paid more. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe there would, would have been more money sooner because they would have been willing to settle for more sooner. But we don't know. Um, but I think there's no question that the plan seeks to do some very good things. You know, some money, you know, whatever it's going to be, you know, whether it's six or seven or $8 billion over 18 years is more than no money to help remediate this crisis. But it's a trillion dollar crisis. So like, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it's, it'll do something, um, but it's not going to do a ton. Um, and so the stakes of the, the case really, I think, are... Um, you know, about these sort of fundamental ideas that we have about government and about law, right? We all think, well, we're entitled to a day in court if somebody harms us. And we're all entitled to hold regulators and government actors accountable if they screw up. And the answer is, mm, actually, bankruptcy might complicate that. And, you know, so what, you know, the folks that we've been talking about and, you know, thousands of other creditors learn the hard way in the Purdue Pharma cases that, like they will not get their day in court and they won't even get anything that comes close to it. There won't even be a representative version of that where somebody can, you know, put some witnesses on the stand and get them to explain what they did and didn't do. Um, and, you know, that day in court matters. Like if you care about the rule of law, you care about the capacity the law has to deter misconduct. If you care about reasoned decision making, you know, if you care about the rule of law that we say we care about, like bankruptcy in this case, it's a problem because this is going to set the model going forward. And the same is true for, you know, holding regulators accountable. Like, you know, everybody says, well, look, you know, the government approved this stuff. That's right. Like the government's got a really complicated role in all this. The U.S. trustees led the charge against the Purdue, you know, the, the Sackler releases. But it was the, the DOJ's, the Trump DOJ's deal with the with Purdue Pharma during the bankruptcy case to, you know, settle the criminal charges against the company, but not the Sacklers that probably made the releases inevitable for, you know, reasons we can talk about later. Right. The so famous like, poison pill. The poison pill in, in you know, the, the Department of Justice settlement. So, like, you know, even the U.S. government can't figure out where it, it is on this stuff. But, you know, that means that, like, guess what? The complexity of bankruptcy, right, the possibility of money, those can be great covers for government actors who are, you know, either unwilling or unable to really – hold people accountable themselves. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, Judge Drain's view of the case was like, you know, look, if there's a crime here, let the prosecutors charge people. That's not my job. And he's right about that. And, you know, we don't know why the Department of Justice hasn't charged anybody individually. I think there are lots of folks that we know who think that they probably should have. 
And I don't know enough to know if that's right, but I know it's a really important question. And I believe that the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma was designed to make sure we never get an answer to it. I will say that I uh, sincerely hope that the Department of Justice will at some point reveal that there has been an investigation of members of the Sackler family or other corporate decision makers and uh, hopefully will um, you know, come out with an indictment or a plea Really anything. Or some reason explanation that actually they're not culpable. And, you know, I'm not sure I'd be persuaded by that, but at least you'd have some reason to think that there was some legitimate decision based on some principle as opposed to a backroom deal that nobody knows anything about. Right. So, as always, every time uh, we talk about this, we could go on really forever. There are so many facets um, of this question and this proceeding that are not just interesting, but really, really important. And I, you know, as someone who was terrified of bankruptcy as a law student for good reason, um, you know, it's it's a very intimidating area of law. Uh, I really can't emphasize enough the extent to which this proceeding and you know, the, the way that our um, society and judicial system handles complex uh, tort cases, complex cases where people have been hurt um, and bundles them together and processes them. I, I really think it's going to become one of the defining questions for our judicial system and our society, um, especially as we try to prevent these harms from occurring, which I don't know how we do if we don't have a process that really investigates and, uh, you know, informs people and sets a clear deterrent effect. Anyway, (laughs) it's fascinating. It's so, so important. But where we are now is uh, we're just waiting. You know, it's hard to wait. It is hard to wait. And, and it's hard to not know. And, and, and you know, lawyers understand, as you said, lawyers understand, like, well, you know, courts of appeal, they get around to it when they get around to it. But real human beings, like, they don't, you know, they don't know that. And they, there's no reason they should have to know it. And so it's... And it, you know, it's, 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 it's very, it's very difficult. Um, it's an important question. Our hope was that with this episode you would not just be um, as anxious and excited as we are for this ruling to appear on the docket, but uh, interested and more importantly, ready. So hopefully we will speak again when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Um, we can bring other experts and interested people in to talk about what it means to them and what it means for all of us. Right, what it means to have bankruptcy for billionaires. Charlotte, thank you. Thank you.